is from Matthew 26, Matthew 26, 47 through 50. That can be also found in the church pew Bible in front of you on page 833, 833. Let us read. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came to Jesus at once and said, greetings rabbi, and he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. It's good to see all of you this morning. We've got a number of visitors with us. We're really, really glad that you've come to worship God with us. Thank you so much for being in our presence this morning. Give us an opportunity before you leave to get to know you, to greet you. And if you have any questions, we'd love to be able to answer those. It's a little bit of a sad day for us at uh, Katie here. This is the last Sunday that Butch and Jill Wallace will be with us. Their uh, moving truck is coming Tuesday. Is that what you said, Butch? And uh, they may be here Wednesday night, may not be here Wednesday night, depending on how things go. But Butch and Jill, uh, Butch has served as one of our elders for the last uh, more than a year. And uh, Butch and Jill have been such a tremendous blessing to the church here. Um, they, uh, they've worked tirelessly in a lot of different ways, a lot of ways that that you probably aren't, aren't aware of and haven't seen. Uh, they've been wonderful servants of God with us here. They're moving back to Tallahassee because of um, Butch's work and also because there are grandkids in the picture and we understand that, but uh, we're really sad to see them go. One good thing about being a Christian is we never say goodbye, we only say, see you later. And so we're thankful for Butch and Jill. We're thankful for your influence in our lives and in the church here. And we, we look forward to being with you again in the future. Thank you so much for what you've done among us. And the church said? Amen. We're going to talk this morning about Judas Iscariot. I suspect if you were to make a list of villains in literature, that Judas would be one that would almost immediately come to mind. People that in literature just are thought of as being traitors, as being uh, intentionally malicious and just super villains. But Judas was a real person. And it's amazing to think about the way the Bible portrays him because you and I hear the name Judas and we immediately associate it with someone who betrayed the Lord, someone who sinned grievously against Jesus and in some ways just really got the ball rolling as far as Jesus' crucifixion. You know, when babies are born, we still sometimes, not as much now, Name our babies Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. We name our babies Paul. But nobody really names their baby Judas. I don't know that I've ever met a Judas in my life. If you've met a Judas, come talk to me after services because I like to visit with you. But everybody was named Judas in Judas' day. A lot of people were. It was a very common name. In fact, it derives from the tribe of Judah. It's very, very closely related. And the word itself in Hebrew means praise. And a lot of mamas back in the first century were proud to name their children Judas 
The Bible says a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. But when you think about Judas, he ruined that name forever, didn't he? Judas Iscariot. When you look at what the Bible presents about him, here's something that's insightful. Nobody thought it was Judas that was going to betray Jesus. Up until the time that he actually showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane and kissed Jesus, up until that moment, nobody had fingered Judas and said, he's the one. Oh, it's obvious. Judas is the criminal among us. It's obvious. Judas is the one with bad motives. Nobody said that. In fact, when Jesus at the Last Supper said, one of you is going to betray me, all the disciples asked, Master, is it I? Because they could not in their minds conceive of the idea that Judas was going to do this. There are some things we can learn as we study the character of Judas. And there are some things we can learn about Jesus as we study the character of Judas. So what we're going to do this morning is, first of all, a timeline. We're going to talk about the relationship between Jesus and Judas throughout the gospel accounts. And then we're going to draw some conclusions. So the first point of our study this morning is going to be a little bit longer. And the second two points are going to be a little bit more brief. That's by design. I'd like for you, if you have your Bible this morning, to open with me to a number of passages together. Let's set up a timeline of Jesus and his relationship with Judas Iscariot and learn what we can from this man and learn what we can about our Savior and what he wants for our lives as a result. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6, first of all. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. By the way, the passages we're going to study this morning are not all of the passages about Judas. There are others. There are parallel accounts. There are other details here and there that you can also glean in your own study. You can do that for homework. But the passages we're looking at are going to give you a broad sense of how things were between Jesus and Judas Iscariot. In Luke 6, beginning in verse 12, the Bible says that Jesus, well, he was going to select his 12 apostles and he prayed all night long. Notice that in verse 12. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples and from them chose 12 whom he named apostles. So think about what's happening. Jesus, this is one of the most important decisions he's going to make. Because the 12 apostles are going to be the men that stay with him throughout his earthly ministry. And they're going to be the ones that are the foundation of the New Testament church, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Really important decision. Jesus prays about it all night long. And so then in the morning, he calls all of his disciples. Maybe it was a group like this one. Maybe it was about this, this size. It doesn't say. But in this group, Jesus starts picking 12. He calls Matthew and he calls Peter, and he calls James, and he calls John, and he calls James the less. And then it says, last of all, he calls Judas Iscariot. You see that in Luke chapter 6, verse 16? Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor, Luke adds. His name is Judas Iscariot, the one we're studying. And the word Iscariot, nobody's quite sure exactly what it means, but the best guess is that it means that he came from a place called Kerioth. And if that's true about Judas, then Judas is unique among the apostles. If he really is from a place called Kerioth, then he's the only apostle that is not from Galilee. He's the only apostle that's not from the northern part of Israel. He's from a different place. 
but he's chosen by Jesus. Jesus called the 12 one by one. He, he said, these are the men that I want to work with me. And Judas was among the 12. Now turn your Bibles to John chapter 6 and look at the end of that chapter. John chapter 6, verses 67 through 71. As we think about the timeline of Jesus and his relationship with Judas, in John 6, verse 67, Jesus has said some hard things for people to hear, and his audience is going away, and Jesus didn't chase them. He didn't say, wait, wait, you misunderstood. Let me explain. Let me preach another sermon that you like better. Jesus just turned to his apostles and he said, are you also going to go away? And Peter responds, John 6, verse uh, 6 verse 66, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Or 6 verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then look at John 6 verse 70. In John 6 verse 70, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. And John tells us he spoke this of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. Now, John's telling you that after the fact, because John knew after the fact, when he's writing the Gospel of John, he knew who it was. But again, here on this occasion, Jesus says to the 12, I've chosen all of you, one of you's a devil. And still nobody went and looked at Judas and said, oh yeah, we know you're talking about Judas, Lord. We know he's the one who's the devil. Nobody said that. And it wasn't until afterwards that John was able to say, now I know who he's talking about. By the way, here in John chapter 6, the context shows us that Jesus has just healed the, fed the 5,000. And if you look at John 6 verse 15, the scripture says that the people, they were so enamored with Jesus, they were so impressed with his ability that they wanted to take him by force and make him a king. Yesterday, people saw that coronation in England of the king. They, went, they crowned the king they put the, and, and put the scepter in his hand. They wanted to do that to Jesus on this occasion, John 6, 14 and 15, because he could heal the crowd. He could heal the, I mean, to feed the 5,000. He could do amazing things. We're going to make him the king. And Jesus refused. And one of Judas's motives may be that he was disillusioned that Jesus said, no, I will not be your king, not in the way that you want me to be. And so he mentions on this occasion, one of, you is a, one of you is the devil. One of you is not sincere. Now turn your Bibles, if you would, to John 12. John tells us a lot about Judas. In fact, maybe gives us more detail into his motives than any other gospel writer. John 12, and look at verses 4 through 6. Notice this picture a little bit later. This is in the events leading up to the cross, very close now to the actual crucifixion of Jesus. But the scripture says that there's a lady that comes and she uses an expensive jar of perfume that she pours on Jesus to anoint him. And Judas is incensed, it says. As a matter of fact, Judas, it says in verse 4, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, in parentheses, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And then John tells you in John 12, verse 6, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and he had charge of the money bag and he used to help himself to what was put into it. Think about this. You know, sometimes when, when heinous crimes occur, the newscast will go to the, you know, the next door neighbor of the person who committed the terrible crime and they'll put their next door neighbor on camera and the next door neighbor almost always says something like this. 
He was such a gentle and quiet person. I just never could have conceived that he would have done something like this. I just never saw this coming. I didn't think that that kind of thing could be done by somebody like this. Judas was exactly like that. Judas was the kind of guy that when it came time to give charge of the money, Jesus was always receiving money from people that loved him and loved his ministry. And who's gonna carry the money bag? It would make sense to me that Matthew would be pretty good because Matthew's a tax collector. He's good with numbers. He's good with handling money. But no, they didn't give Matthew the money bag. They gave it to Judas because he's the most trustworthy. The way he handles himself, the way he conducts himself, the way he presents himself shows us he's a man of integrity. And now John's telling us behind the scenes, Judas has been taking money out of the treasury. He's got a covetous heart. And when this lady uses this expensive perfume to anoint Jesus, Judas is really upset. He's mad. 300 denarii, that's 300 days wage. You think about how much somebody makes in a year, it's almost that amount. 300 days wages. Look at what she's done. Judas wanted that money in the treasury because he liked to help himself. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, as we think about this timeline of Jesus and his relationship with Judas, it comes time for the cross. It comes to the point where Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's been teaching and Judas is really upset with Jesus for a lot of reasons, it seems. And so in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 14, it says, one of the 12 whose name was Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, now listen, he voluntarily went to the chief priests. They didn't ask him to come. They didn't summon him. They didn't say, we know which one of the 12 is going to be the one that, that we can, that we can you know, use to get to Jesus. He voluntarily went to them and he said, what will you give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, Judas sought an opportunity to betray him. Why? Why did Judas have to do this? Here's the answer. Put yourself in the context of 2,000 years ago, there were no street lights. You know, we take it for granted when we walk outside at night, there are lights everywhere, especially around here. And you're never really totally in the dark. But 2,000 years ago, unless there's a torch nearby, it is pitch black at night. And Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover. That is a huge feast. Hundreds of thousands of people come to Jerusalem every year in Jesus' day for the Passover. And every day Jesus is in the temple and he's preaching and he's teaching and he's healing. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they're mad at Jesus, but they don't dare arrest Jesus in the temple when they can see him during the day. They want to find him at night. But the problem is every night Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes and he camps out somewhere and they don't know where. And if you can ever imagine being in a crowd of hundreds of thousands of people all leaving the city at night and Jesus and his, and his apostles are in that crowd, the, the Pharisees, they don't know where Jesus is going. They don't know where he's spending the night. And that's why Judas says, I'll help you. What are you going to give me if I show you where he is? That's what this is doing. What will you pay me if I sell him out to you? Judas was essential because they never would have found Jesus in the darkness had it not been for him.
He knew where Jesus went at night. He knew he was going to be in that garden. And that's how he led Jesus in the, uh, led the, the, the soldiers and the Pharisees in the dark to Jesus. Next in our timeline, go back to John. John 13. We come now to the Last Supper. As you think about what's happening with Judas, in John 13, verses 1 through 17, Jesus washes the apostles' feet. And it's worth mentioning that Judas was still in the room. Jesus served even his enemies. And then if you look at verses 21 through 30, after saying these things, John 13, 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked around at each other and they said, uh, they, they, were, they were uncertain of whom he spoke. And then they, they said, Lord, who's it gonna be? One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. The Simon Peter motioned to him, ask Jesus, ask him of whom he was speaking. So that the disciple leaning back against Jesus said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he whom I, I give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. And still, I don't know that the apostles fully understood what was happening. Jesus, it seems, was giving a private, having a private conversation with John here. Which one is it, Jesus? And privately, Jesus says, the one I give, the bread, and I dip, the morsel. And so when it's confirmed to be Judas, when it's confirmed to be him, Jesus looks at Judas and he says, what you do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said to them, said this to him, it says. And some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, but that he should give some, or that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and the scripture says it was night. Judas leaves, and this is the last time he's among the apostles. Continuing our timeline, turn back to Matthew 26, verses 47 through 50. I know a lot of scriptures here. I know a lot of different uh, passages to look at. It's important to understand what happens with Judas Iscariot because there are some really critical things for us to think about. Matthew 26, verse 47. The scripture says, as was read just a few moments ago by Gary. The scripture says that they are in the garden and that while he's speaking, it says in verse 47, Judas, one of the 12, came and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one whom I kiss is the man, seize him. That's to keep you from picking the wrong man in the dark because what would stop Peter or James or John from saying, I'm the, I'm the Messiah, I'm and protecting Jesus, being like a decoy. What would stop them from doing that? Only Judas could stop them because Judas recognizes Jesus. And so he walks up to Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek. And that's how the soldiers know to arrest the Lord. Betrayal with a kiss. Turn over to Matthew 27. When Judas sees what happens, it says in Matthew 27, verse 3, Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. And he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself, it says. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and very righteously, the chief priests say this, well, it's not lawful for us to put into the treasury this money since it is blood money. 
So they took counsel and they bought with them. The potter's field is a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And thus it was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And these they gave for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Judas regrets what he's done, tries to give the money back. They won't take it. And Judas hangs himself. Turn over to Acts, two more passages to look at. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. Acts chapter 1, verse 16. As the book of Acts begins, they have to select an additional apostle because there are only 11. There need to be 12 according to the Lord's will, according to prophecy. And they review what happened to Judas. We won't read all of it, but it's a, it's a very ugly account of how Judas went out and hugged himself and the great terrible judgment that fell upon Judas as a result. And then as you look at Acts 1 verse 25, the prophecy said that he was going to go unto his own place. When you look at scripture and you look at what it says about Judas, it's not a happy story, but it's an intriguing story for a couple of reasons. What were his motives? The Bible doesn't really give you a great deal of insight into that. Why did Judas finally do what he did? We know these things about Judas. We know that Judas really wanted Jesus to be the Messiah. And maybe he was bitter and disillusioned that Jesus wasn't going to be the kind of king that the people wanted him to be. We also know that Judas was covetous. We know that he used to steal from the treasury and that he really wanted that money that would have come from that lady's perfume being sold rather than being wasted on Jesus. We know those things about Judas. We also know that Judas, for whatever reason, is the one who went and volunteered to sell Jesus to the Pharisees and the chief priests. But what were his motives? Beyond that, we can't say for sure. I think that's a good thing because I think there are some things that all of us need to reflect on and to understand about the life of Judas Iscariot. Let's do this. Let's make two observations about Jesus first. Two observations about Jesus. As you look at the way he interacted with Judas, I believe you will come to love Jesus more as you think about these things. Number one, Jesus had the ability to keep confidences. Now think about it. From the very beginning, when he chose the 12, Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And if that were even a matter of controversy, you can look at John chapter six and verse 71, where he says, I'm talking about Judas, the one who's gonna betray me. He doesn't say that in those words to his apostles, but that's exactly what he means, John 6, 70 and 71. Jesus could read people's minds. You didn't have to tell Jesus what you're thinking because he could look right into your heart and he could see. He knew exactly what you're thinking. And he knew Judas was not sincere and he knew Judas was not everything that he should have been or appeared to be to the others. And yet, and yet, watch this. Jesus allowed Judas to carry the money purse the entire time, even up to the cross. Even at the Last Supper, Judas still has the money bag. What you do, do quickly as he goes out to betray Jesus. And also, Jesus doesn't, at any point in his ministry, take Peter and James and John aside, because they were kind of his inner circle, and say, you guys really ought to watch out for Judas. Or, 
What do you guys think about Judas? What do you think about his motives? You think he's sincere? I don't know about Judas. I'd, I'd keep an eye on him if I were you. For three and a half years, Jesus lived with the knowledge that Judas was going to betray him and he never sold him out or told the other apostles, keep your distance from him. Brothers and sisters and friends, there's something good about listening to that lesson from Jesus. You and I say we want to be like Jesus. At least I hope that's what you want. You may know some things about somebody else. You may know some really terrible things about somebody else. Just because you know some things doesn't necessarily mean you have the right to say what you know to somebody else. And here's Jesus all through his ministry. And and you ask the question, why? Why doesn't Jesus say anything about Judas except for the cryptic, one of you is a devil or one of you will betray me? Why doesn't he say, it's Judas, he's the one? Why doesn't he do that? I believe 2 Peter 3, verse 9, I believe this about Jesus. God is not willing that any should perish, not even Judas. This was not God's will for Judas' life. God did not want Judas to be lost, although he is. But all through his ministry, Jesus is extending an olive branch by keeping quiet and not saying everything he knows. He had the ability to keep confidences. You and I are going to need that ability if we're going to be gracious and kind to others. If you live very long as a a Christian, you're going to need that ability. Secondly, as we think about Jesus, not only did he have the ability to keep confidences, but Jesus knows what betrayal feels like. He knows what it's like to have somebody profess love profess devotion, profess loyalty, and then betray all that. I believe there is no deeper betrayal than for a spouse to be unfaithful. I don't know that there's any more cutting to the heart kind of betrayal than that, except for what Jesus encountered with Judas. And for those who have been betrayed in your life, for those who have felt the sting and the pain and the ongoing questioning and what was wrong with me that this happened, you can look to Jesus and you can look and understand he knows and understands you and what you feel like. He knows what betrayal feels like. Those are some observations that are worthy of our contemplation. But not only that, when you think about Judas Iscariot, there are some warnings And I want to leave you with these three warnings. Because the life of Judas, if it tells us anything, tells us this. Number one, no one can serve two masters. You know what Jesus was talking about when he said no one can serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24? He's talking about money. No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one and love the other, love the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot do it. A lot of people try. A lot of people wish they could. A lot of people are trying to make their best effort at it. You cannot do it. And you can't become like Judas and say, well, you know, I want to be close to Jesus and I want to look the part and I want to follow him and I want to learn from him, but I also want, I want to keep this. And and I know, I know that I'm having to compromise some of what he's all about to do this, but I got to do this because this is important to me too. You cannot live that way. 
No one can serve two masters. If anybody in the Bible shows you the dangers of materialism, it is Judas Iscariot. He loved the money, he loved the stuff, and he sold Jesus out as a result. Don't think you are the exception. No one can serve two masters. Pick who you're going to serve. And when it comes to, in your life, a choice of I've got to compromise my principles so that I can have more money, or I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart, you follow Jesus with all your heart because you can't serve two masters. I'm telling you, you're going to try and you're going to fail. And you're going to end up hating and resenting Jesus as a result. That's what happened to Judas. He was so upset by the fact that Jesus stood for some things that he just wasn't really ready to get rid of and and lose in his life. You can't have both in your heart as your God, as your idol, as the one that you're gonna serve and worship more than anything else. You can't have both. No one can serve two masters. Colossians 3 verse five tells every Christian, you put away covetousness out of your heart because it is idolatry. You're putting another God in your heart and it's not the God of heaven and you can't serve both. What does Judas warn us about? I'll tell you this. Some people sin against greater opportunity than others. We live in a place, in a time, in history where you can have a copy of the Bible in about 10 seconds if you download it over Wi-Fi onto your personal device. You live in a time in history where nobody is telling you that you can't read the Bible and you can't learn from God and you can't know Him. Nobody's trying to force you not to do those things. You live in a a wonderful time in a wonderful place with wonderful opportunities and not everybody has what you have. Historically, not everybody has had what you have. If you go around the world, not everybody has what you have. I have lists of countries that I pray for. One of my countries I pray for, I don't know if you do this, I do, North Korea. You're going to prison probably for the rest of your life if you have a Bible in North Korea. Did you know that? You are not going to come back. You may be shot as a matter of just having and possessing a Bible. Saudi Arabia, much the same way. You pray for countries like that, but I'll tell you this. It would be a tragedy, a terrible thing to live your life in North Korea and die and go to hell. It would be even worse for you to live in Katy, Texas in the United States of America and die and go to hell. It would be worse for you. And the reason why is because you are sinning against such a tremendous opportunity. What are you doing with God and what he's put in your hands? Acts 24, 25, some more convenient day. When I have a better time, I'll call for you. We need to think about what we're doing with our lives and ask, what does God expect of me? What does he want from me? What opportunities has he given me that I am failing to take advantage of? I believe Judas sinned against the greatest opportunity of anybody that's ever lived. Judas, with his eyes, saw the miracles of Jesus. With his ears, he heard the teachings of Jesus. With his feet, he followed Jesus all over Israel. And yet none of that made an impact. And by the way, a lot of people have regret about their adult children. They have regrets about things that their adult children are doing, choices their adult children have made. My heart breaks for you, it really does. I believe all of us ought to to say, we empathize and we understand something of 
the, the, the difficulty of what you're going through. But I'll tell you this, Judas had the very, very, very best opportunities. He had the very best teacher. And Judas, of his own free will, chose to throw it all away. You and I need to remember that as we raise our kids. You might well do a wonderful job as a Christian parent and your child still, still might decide, you know what, I'm gonna throw all this away. I don't want this anymore. Judas certainly did. Some people sin against tremendous opportunity. Third warning, partial discipleship always, always leads to deception. What do you mean, John? I mean this. There are people who want to be Christian, but not too Christian. They want to be members of the church, but not too much. They want to follow Jesus, but from a distance. They want to have their name on the roll, if you will, as if our role was some kind of book of life. They want to have their name in the directory on light post, whatever, but it, not too much. I don't want to be too involved. When you try to live like that, when you decide that with your life that you're not going to be fully 100% sold out, devoted to Jesus Christ, and what I mean by that is love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love the Lord that way, and make sure that everybody knows that that's how you're loving the Lord. When you decide, I'm not going to do that, you're going to have to start deceiving some folks because you're going to introduce into your life some things that if everybody else found out I was doing this, if everybody else found out that this was okay with me, I'd be kind of ashamed. If the Lord looked at me while I was in the midst of this activity or that, that occupation, I'd, I'd be ashamed if that's what he saw. That's partial discipleship. And you're going to have to start deceiving some people. You start deceiving others. You start managing your reputation and managing your image. And you lead off, well, I don't ordinarily do this, but the other day, dot, 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 dot. You're kind of managing and deceiving, or maybe you're just hiding things. But the other thing is this. If you decide as a Christian that you're just going to be a partial disciple, you're going to end up deceiving yourself. Everybody, before I finish this lesson, open your Bible to James 1, look at verse 22. James 1, verse 22. Judas warns us by his example of this. James 1 and verse 22. James says, we quote it all the time. We need to think about it more. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving who? Who does he say we're deceiving? If we're hearers only, who are we deceiving? We're deceiving ourselves. When you decide you're going to be a partial disciple, you decide you're just going to do a little bit. I'm just going to serve a little bit. I'm just going to give a partial contribution to Jesus. I'm just going to give a partial of my, a part of my life. There's, there's this part over here that I'm going to keep back for myself you will end up deceiving yourself. You will lie to yourself. You will feel safe. You will feel secure. You will feel like everything is fine in your life because you have deceived yourself. And yet, and yet, God says, you're not what I want you to be. I want you to love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Stop deceiving yourself. Brothers and sisters and friends, 
the closer we get to Jesus, the more of a choice we have to make. And the choice boils down to this. Either you give yourself fully, 100%, totally to Jesus. Either you do that or you're going to reject Jesus. Even if you still play the role, even if you still play the part, you're going to end up rejecting him. That's what Judas teaches us. That's the challenge that God sets before every one of us. Won't you, because of who Jesus is and because of the kind of Savior that He is and the kind of help He wants to give you in your life, won't you come to Him in loving, submissive, obedient faith and give your whole heart and your whole life and your whole identity to who He is and let Him change your life and let Him be the Lord of your life and let Him be the Savior of your life? Won't you do that? Because the alternative is to go and to be where Judas is. If we can help you obey the gospel this morning, if we can help you by praying for you, whatever your need, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing.